Well, what a rich morning we've already had, worshiping and praying, taking the Lord's Supper together and welcoming a brother into membership. Well, a few years after my wife Andrew and I were married, uh, we moved out to Chilliwack, where I got a job at a good church, and we bought a house with a great big yard, and we made some wonderful friends. And life was good in Chilliwack. We loved our life there. The only inconvenience was that our family, our, our parents and our siblings, they all lived around here in Burnaby and in Coquitlam. And they did not like driving out to Chilliwack to come visit us. It's like the pit stop on the way to like going to the Okanagan, right? But you know, I was okay with that because I loved our families, like even though I loved them, I also, I loved my independence and I didn't feel the need to see them regularly. I thought a phone call would do just fine. Sorry, mom, if you're listening, but you know, that's how I felt at the time. But that all changed when I had children. Then all of a sudden I began to assess things differently. Then I wanted them in my life more often, especially I wanted them in the life of my two kids. And quite unexpectedly, I said to Andrea one day that we should consider moving back to this area. And it would mean starting a, a new job. It would mean that we wouldn't be able to just see those friends of ours so easily. And most notably, it would change things for us financially. It would mean that we would lose the, big house, uh, the house with the big yard and would mean downsizing because there was no way that we would be able to afford a detached home in this area. But we were okay with that. You see, although those things were important to us, they no longer seemed to hold the value that they once did, especially when compared to having our family involved in our children's lives. All of a sudden, we felt that gaining those relationships, it was worth losing these other things. And we see something similar to that in this passage that we're looking at this morning in Philippians 3 as we continue our series through Paul's letter. Paul says the same thing about Jesus, that before knowing Christ, Paul had these things he valued, these things that felt brought him security, and that he says he's given them up for Jesus and that he's happy to do it. Because as we see in this passage, knowing Jesus, it's worth losing it all. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11. And I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we move through that. Paul writes, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 
What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word for us this morning. Well, Paul begins this passage to the Philippians by telling them to rejoice in the Lord. He wants them to be glad about their relationship with King Jesus, and he places this at the beginning of this passage because he's about to give them a warning and an appeal. But ultimately, he wants rejoicing in the Lord to be the framework in which they are to hear everything he's about to say to them. It's kind of like, have you ever gotten a phone call from someone? And before they tell you the story, they say something like this. Everyone's okay. And then they go into the story. Or everything's worked out fine, right? They tell you this up front as they share with you what's happened so that you don't get upset as you start hearing the details of the story because the story, it has a good ending. And that's what Paul's doing for us here. He wants the Philippians and us to remember that rejoicing in the Lord is ultimately where he's heading with what he's about to say. So as we move through this passage this morning, we need to keep this in mind, that what Paul has to say to us should ultimately lead us to rejoicing in the Lord. He then says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. So Paul's reminding them that the warning he's about to give them is something that he's already talked to them about before, and he doesn't mind being repetitive because Paul cares for the Philippians and that this warning is for their good. It's for their protection. Watch out for the dogs, those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh, he says in verse 2. Here, Paul is warning the Philippians about this group known as the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers, they were a sect who believed in Jesus, but they insisted that non-Jews, so Gentiles, must first become Jews in order to be fully acceptable to God and a part of the church family. See, they demanded that in, in addition to trusting Jesus, that Gentile believers must also follow the law or the Torah, specifically three things that they wanted them to follow. Kosher food laws, Sabbath keeping, and most importantly, circumcision. For Israelites, the practice of circumcision was the ultimate sign of their relationship with God who instructed their founding father, Abraham, in Genesis 17, saying, you are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. And then in Acts 15:1, we see how a group of these Judaizers, they went down to the church of Antioch, which was very similar to the church of Philippi, in that it was made up of mostly Gentile believers. And they said to them there, that unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, 
you cannot be saved. Can you imagine the concern and the stress that this caused for those, those believers at Antioch, hearing that they couldn't be saved unless they were circumcised? Plus, this totally contradicts what they had learned from Paul when he taught them that salvation comes through faith in Christ. But Acts 15 goes on to show how Paul and Barnabas, they argued with these Judaizers. They contended that, no, it's through faith alone. So eventually, both groups went back to Jerusalem and they presented their cases before the Jerusalem council. So the elders of the church and the apostles who eventually came to the decision that affirmed Gentile believers do not have to be circumcised, that salvation is a gift which cannot be earned. And then Peter says in Acts 15, 11, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that they are saved, that we are saved, just as they, the Gentiles, are. Now you'd think that this would seem to settle the matter, but it appears there are still groups of Judaizers who are going around to these Christian communities, planting seeds of doubt and misleading Gentile Christians into the lie that faith in Jesus alone is not enough for salvation and belonging to the people of God, that you have to believe and observe the Torah. This is why Paul seems so hostile, even rude here in verse 2. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. These are scathing insults. It reminds me of a time when I went out for lunch with a friend of mine from church. I drove to his apartment building to pick him up, and as we were about to leave, we were approached by a couple of Jehovah Witnesses who was looking for another friend of ours who was a part of our church who also happened to live in that same apartment building. And they asked if we knew him and where he lived, and we did. Uh, but my friend, he refused to tell them his address, and he told the Jehovah Witnesses to leave our friend alone. And as I'm standing there, as this is going on, I gotta say, this is uncomfortable, and this is certainly not what we're used to as, you know, polite Canadians. But I understood why my friend responded like this and why Paul seems to be so hostile here. You see, it's because both of them were protecting those they care about and protecting or safeguarding, as Paul says, the most important thing, their salvation. You see, Judaizers, like Jehovah Witnesses, are not fellow believers who just, fall, who just belong to another denomination or another church. They're not fellow Christians with just different views on non-essential practices. They are heretics teaching false doctrines of the worst kind. They are telling people that in order to be saved, you need Jesus plus the Torah, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus good works. But that math doesn't add up. As soon as you try to add anything to Jesus, you're really subtracting from him and what he has done. You're saying that Jesus isn't enough and Paul won't put up with it. The Bible is clear that salvation is a gift that one receives through believing and trusting in Christ alone. Ephesians 2 says to us, for it is by the grace, it's for by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. In verse 3, when Paul says, it is we who are the circumcision. He's not only saying that the Philippians don't need to be actually circumcised, but that those who put their faith in Christ, they are now 
the true covenant people of God. Those who put their faith in Christ are now the true covenant people of God. You see, under the former covenant, circumcision was the outward sign that identified you as belonging to God's family. But even then, circumcision was supposed to be just this outward symbol of this inward reality, just like baptism is for us. It's the outward sign of one's faith and trust in God. Romans 2, 28-29 says that a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely the outward and physical, is merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. So when Jesus ushered in the new covenant, circumcision was no longer necessary, nor even legitimate as the sign for being God's people. Acts 15, 8 and 9 makes it clear that the authentic sign that one belongs to the family of God is by having the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter said, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us and them, Jew and Gentile, for he purified their hearts by faith. Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians 12 that, there, that no one can declare that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so if you have faith in Christ for your salvation, if all your hope and your trust is in him and that you call him your Lord and Savior, then you have the Holy Spirit in you and that is the sign that you belong to the family of God. Paul says as much in the rest of verse 3 in today's passage. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who are the people of God, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, so who proclaim Him as Lord, and who put no confidence in the flesh. When he says, who put no confidence in the flesh, Paul is not only referring to our bodies, but the flesh, it means more than that. It has to do with all of our human achievement. And here he is setting himself up for his next argument that he's going to give us in verses 4 to 6. In these verses, he says that if anybody had a right to feel confident about their right standing with God based on the flesh, based on their family history or their human achievement, it was him. He says, my family history... Not only were Paul's parents Torah-observing Jews, having him circumcised on the eighth day, but he can trace his family lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin. Very few Jews back in that day could actually trace their family lineage back to knowing to actually which tribe they belonged to. He then says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This likely meant that he grew up speaking Hebrew in his home. And most Jews in this day were Hellenistic Jews and were unable to speak Hebrew. He then lists his human achievements, calling himself a Pharisee. We know that this meant their dedication and their study of the law. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church, this one shows that his commitment to the law was demonstrated by his dedication to stamping out the Christian movement. This was obviously before he encountered Christ. And then finally, he finishes with, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Now here, Paul is not saying that he's sinless 
it would be similar to me saying that I'm blameless in my driving if I follow all of the traffic and speed laws. However, that would not necessarily mean that I'm a perfect driver. I won't comment on that. But Paul followed all the rules. He made every sacrifice, but he wasn't sinless. Now this list, this list would have been impressive to any of these Judaizers or any of Paul's contemporary Jewish friends, but the problem is it has nothing to do with Paul's relationship to God. It has everything to do with his relationship to the law. He says as much. He says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But that righteousness, it only produced confidence in Paul's flesh. Self-righteousness predicated on Torah observance, not a righteousness with God that comes through faith, through Christ. That's why when Paul met Jesus, he says that Christ turned his whole world upside down. Because that encounter not only upended how Paul related to God, but it also upended what he believed about his ancestral heritage and, and all of his human achievements. Jesus completely transformed Paul's whole value system. He says in verses 7 to 11, where he paints this picture of a, a balance statement or a ledger with all of the, the debts that he owes on one side, and all the gains and the profits on the other. And the whole point of the, the balance statement or the ledger is that it helps you to tally everything up. And you hope that at the very bottom, at the end, that you come out ahead, or at least that you break even. And to the Judaizers, Paul's list, his list of accomplishments, his, his family history in verse 5 and 6, this would have had him in the clear with God in their eyes, just as it had once for Paul. But once he met Jesus, Paul says, all those things that he thought were gains or profits, everything that he believed brought him security, he now considers them a part of that loss column or that debt column compared to knowing Christ. This is because he now sees those things did nothing to settle his debts with God. They did nothing to get him right, but Jesus did. Jesus did everything. Jesus paid it all on the cross. And when you compare the worth of anything to Jesus, then you begin to see those things differently, Paul says. It changes the value that you once placed on them, that knowing Jesus is worth losing it all. In verse 8, he says, I consider them garbage. In fact, the word he uses here, it's... Uh, it's not polite enough to use in church than garbage. He says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul's not saying that Jesus is so wonderful that everything else pales in comparison, although that's true. Jesus is so wonderful that everything else does pale in comparison. But Paul's also saying that to gain Christ, you can no longer place value on anything else in addition to get you right with God. Anything else that you once thought would get you in his good books, you now have to consider it a loss, that it's actually a hindrance to you. It's garbage. There is no Jesus 
plus the Torah, Jesus plus good works, Jesus plus my, I was born to Christian parents, Jesus plus, and then you fill in the blank. It's not that any of these things are bad in of themselves. In fact, they are good things. But when we add something on to get ourselves right with God, it's just another way of us saying that Jesus alone isn't enough. And then like the Judaizers, it only ends up putting us back in that lost column. My friend Scott Anderson, he says that when we fall into this, a trap, this trap of assessing our standing with God based on our performance, it either has us feeling confident or cowering. We come in feeling self-confident or cowering. And I know I have fallen into this trap many times in my life before. Coming into church on Sunday morning, especially those Sunday mornings where I see the communion table. I can come in confident, feeling good about myself this week because of how well I behaved. You know, I avoided sin. I was regular with my Bible reading, my devotions, right? I was on fire for God this week, and so I'm confident. I am ready to worship. Or I come in cowering because I haven't done enough. I've fallen to temptation. I didn't do my devotions with regularity. I wasn't feeling close to God this week. And so in these times, I've been guilty of thinking that Jesus isn't enough. But friends, it's not our obedience. It's not, it, it's not that our obedience isn't vital in our relationship with God. Like my children's obedience, it has an impact on my relationship with them. It affects our relationship, but I would never want them feeling confident, or questioning my love based on their performance. I hope they know that they are loved because they trust me and because I have shown them my love for them. Our standing with God as his children, it's not determined by our performance. Romans 5, 8 makes this clear. God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love for us before any of us were ever thinking of performing our love for him. But when we think about our standing with God, we often view it in these terms of being judged guilty or innocent as we're standing before the, the heavenly court, or are we financially solvent or in debt according to his divine audit. And though these terms or these analogies, they're biblical and they can be helpful in us understanding how God forgives and removes the sin from us uh, when we put our trust in Christ and his death and resurrection, I think that sometimes these analogies fall short of proclaiming the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us. You see, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith that Paul talks about in verse 9 is more than just being found innocent or not, no longer owing God a debt. It also means being in a right relationship, a good and loving relationship with him as our heavenly father. This is why Paul says three times in this passage that it's about knowing Christ. See, knowing Christ 
is not just being familiar or understanding who Jesus is, but knowing is a matter of this personal relationship, not just knowing about Jesus, but knowing him personally. It's like, I know Alfonso Davies. Most of you have no idea who Alfonso Davies is, I'm guessing. He is a fantastic Canadian soccer player who plays for this team in Germany called Bayern Munich, and he's awesome. I know him, but I don't know him personally, not like I know my wife and my children, who I have this close and intimate relationship with. And this is what Paul says is worth giving everything up for. Compared to knowing Jesus personally, compared to knowing Jesus intimately, everything else pales in comparison to that, that knowing Jesus like this is worth losing it all. But this is so challenging for me because just as I can sometimes fall into this trap of assessing my standing with God based on my performance, I can also fall into the trap of evaluating my relationship with Jesus on how much I know about him. You see, I have a knowledge of Jesus. I know the stories. I, I've been taught how to interpret the scriptures. Heck, I've got two degrees in biblical and Christian studies. But those don't mean anything when it comes to do I have a personal relationship with him? They don't mean anything when it comes to do I know him intimately as my best friend or as Paul says, as my Lord. And to be honest, this is an area where the Spirit of God gently nudges me with regularity, asking me, Dave, do you still consider me worth knowing more than everything else? Dave, do you value me more than going out for your bike rides or watching your TV shows? It's not easy admitting to him, yes, Jesus, I, I love you, but sometimes how I spend my time and how I spend my thoughts, I allow these other things to hold way more value than they should compared to knowing you, Lord. I'm sorry. It doesn't mean that riding our bikes or whatever are bad things, but I want my life to show that those things pale in comparison to Christ, right? That they are garbage compared to him, that Jesus is the most important thing and that knowing him is worth losing it all. And I mention how I spend my time because I think how we spend our time is a big indicator of what we love. Just think about how you spend your time. If you want to show someone that you care about them, time tends to be one of the gifts that we give people in order to show that we care for them. And if we're going to have this intimate relationship with Jesus, then we're going to need to reevaluate our priorities, and one of those things is how we spend our time. Are we spending time with Jesus so that we can know him deeply and intimately? And then sometimes when pastors say things like this, if you're like me, we can feel a little guilty when we say things like that. But here's the thing. I'm not super motivated by guilt, if I'm honest. I rarely often make lasting changes to my behavior or in my life because of guilt. However, I do know Jesus. And I know what's motivating me to change is what I've already experienced in my relationship with him. That he is so good and he is so kind that I want to spend more time with him. 
You see, when I spend time with Jesus, he helps me to make better choices. He makes me a better person. He makes me a better husband and father. He makes me a better pastor and friend. And so if knowing Jesus means that I need to reevaluate things in my life, and I, if I need to devalue some other things or reprioritize or even lose them altogether, then so be it, friends, because knowing Jesus, it's worth losing it all. See, in verses 10 to 11, Paul, he writes here, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Isn't this a little out of order to how we normally hear the, little, the gospel unfolded to us? He says, resurrection, suffering, death, resurrection. Normally we hear him talking about it as in suffering, death, and then resurrection. But the truth is, each one of us experiences the resurrected Christ before we ever experience participating in his suffering or becoming like him in his death. It was the resurrected Paul, I mean, resurrected Jesus, who met Paul on the road to Damascus, who turned his world upside down. It was the resurrected Jesus who met me as a child when I was at summer camp, who beckoned me to come and follow him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it was a resurrected Christ who came and met you. Certainly when we follow Jesus, we better be prepared to suffer. We better be prepared for some losses. Jesus says that anybody who wants to be his disciple must be prepared to take up their cross when they come and follow him. But it's in those moments of suffering that when all the things that we cling to for security, when those things are torn away from us, that we discover then in those moments how faithful Jesus is to stick with us, how he never leaves or forsakes us. And so suffering, even suffering, can allow us a deeper and more intimate connection with Jesus than we ever thought possible. And Paul says that by participating in his suffering, that we're becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, somehow, we don't know, God only knows, we will attain to the resurrection of the dead. And that, my friends, the resurrection, that makes knowing Jesus, worth losing everything. See, Paul ends with attaining to the resurrection because that's the hope, that's the thing that puts everything else into perspective, and that is what allows us to rejoice. Do you remember what I said at the beginning of the message? What was the framework for everything Paul had to say? Yeah! Thank you, sister. Yes, Paul says that we can be glad about our relationship with Jesus because all this talk about loss and suffering and death, those are just the details. Like, they're super important, but ultimately, they're leading somewhere. They're leading to resurrection, to the place where we can finally really rejoice, where we celebrate being with and knowing Jesus better than we, than we even know ourselves, and where nothing can come between us and him ever again. We rejoice because we can know Christ both now and then forever in the resurrection. 